0: This evening, to, I was going to say Revelation. I'm so used to saying that. Revelation, so used to saying that, to the book of Daniel. And tonight, and the next couple of uh, nights throughout, I think, five or six weeks, I guess, however long it takes me to get through the material, um, we're going to attempt to connect Daniel with Revelation. Okay? So, Daniel. In Revelation, they're connected. So we're done, right? They're connected. Uh, Pastor said that uh, I had written a book. I did so back in 2015. um, And unfortunately, that won't help you in this series um, because that's only the first half of the book of Daniel. And so we're going to be talking more about the second half of the book of Daniel and not the first half. However, the book about the first half is a really good book. And you need to pick it up. And uh, it's available on Amazon, it's available in digital format, it's available in all your major bookseller marketplaces. And if you purchase one, I will sign it for free, it won't charge you anything. So there's that, that's done. So tonight as we look into, uh, begin to kind of start and look into the book of Daniel, I want you to understand that um, this, is, this, this series, I, I thought about calling it uh, Revelation the Prequel. You know how you have prequels, and how they have a series, a movie come out, and they love the movie. Then the uh, producers all of a sudden decide, "Hey, let's make a sequel to it. Let's go back to the beginning and tell the story before you get there." Well, that's kind of what we're going to be doing as we talk through the some of the prophecies here in the book of Daniel. But I'm going to focus in on connecting them to Revelation and how and why. And as Pastor said, it's kind of the beginning, kind of the foundation. For what, we're gonna, what we did already learn about in the book of Revelation, Daniel sets down that foundation. Um, now I forgot my uh, trigger, oh there we go, I, I, it's magical. Got a couple of things I just want to talk about before we get into, um, into the text today. We're going to begin Daniel chapter 2 uh, this evening if you want to turn there, that way you don't have to turn there later. Uh, Just a couple of things by way of introduction about Daniel's prophecies, just so you understand. And these aren't anything new. um, They just need to be uh, remembered kind of in our brains as we talk through uh, Daniel's prophecies. The first one up there, it says, future events described in New Testament books, i.e. the Revelation, like we've discussed, are regularly built on the foundations of Daniel, the foundation of Daniel's prophecy. So Daniel kind of sets the foundation, and Revelation kind of colors in a lot of the details, all right? So as you look at some of these Old Testament books, and Daniel is the biggest one probably, uh, other ones, Zechariah, some other ones, and Ezekiel, even in Jeremiah, um, they set this foundation for us, and Revelation goes and colors in all the details. But we always want to, when you're reading a book, right? Go to Revelation, go to the end, and figure out how it all ends, well, sometimes you have to appreciate, too, how it all began all the way back in the book of Daniel. Now, some of Daniel's prophecies are so detailed that critics often reject the possibility that they were ever foretold uh, before they happened. Okay, So they are so detailed, some of them, uh, the ones that Daniel's, Daniel gives for the you know, one, two, or three hundred years after his lifetime they are so, so specific and so detailed that critics say there's no possible way that he could have known that. Well, you're right. I mean, because God gave him those things, and that's why he does. In fact, they're so uh, worried about that that they do some things that kind of change um, our understanding of the book of Daniel. And this is what they do, and it's real simple, but, but stay with me here. So the book of Daniel was written uh, around 605 B.C. is when the event started, and then about 530 B.C. is when the book is written, okay? So after the events of the book happened, that's when the book is written, right? Like a regular book that you would write, your autobiography after your life is over, the book is written, okay? Not before in the middle, but at the end. And so what they say is they say, well the book of Daniel wasn't written at that time. It was written much later so that these prophecies in the book are not actually prophecies. Now it's just past history. And so they do some interpretative acrobatics, so to speak, and they say, well, it was written much, much later and not earlier when the Scripture says it was written. So they want to tie up all the details. And say that, take the supernatural part out of it and say God is not involved in it at all. He couldn't have given Daniel these prophecies, and for them to be so detailed and so exact, that's ridiculous. And so they actually push back the date and say much, much later. A third thing here the prophecy does not need to be fulfilled to the exact day in order for us to trust its accuracy. Do you realize that? It doesn't have to be the exact day. The classic example of this is in Daniel chapter 9 when, if you've studied this before, um, Daniel presents this this, um, uh, 70 weeks prophecy. And a lot of times today in our Western world, we want to convert the information in that prophecy to days, 24-hour days, to some exact detail. But Daniel's, what he gives us is he gives us weeks of seven, weeks of seven years. That's kind of his hand grenades and horseshoes um, as far as his prophecy. And so it doesn't have to be the exact detailed day. Now, there have been some scholars, and when we get to Daniel chapter 9, we'll find out about this, some scholars that have done tons and tons of research into this and tried to ascertain when these exact things happened in the past and happened in the future. And they get it down to the exact day. But again, prophecy doesn't need to be fulfilled to the exact day in order for us to trust its accuracy because it's coming from God. And that's who we need to trust. And if God is completely sovereign over the future, then he is surely in complete control of the present. Now, the first half of Daniel which I wrote about in that book. It's called Trusting God Despite the Dangers. Now the second half is about trusting God despite the details. Because sometimes there's lots and lots and lots of details. And we lose the big picture in the midst of all the details. And so my intent is to help you not lose the big picture in the midst of all those details, especially as you connect Revelation back to Daniel. Very, very important. And I don't want you to lose Uh, lose sight of that. So as we begin tonight, you're in Daniel chapter 2 and we're going to look there shortly in Daniel chapter 2. But before we get there, can you advance the next slide? There you go. This is what we need to understand tonight, the four kingdoms. The four kingdoms are the basic building blocks for all of Daniel's prophecies. These four kingdoms. Remember last week with Chris Katalka, he talked about, he actually talked about Daniel. See, Daniel chapter seven, important in prophecy. We'll get to Daniel chapter seven next week. But he talked about the kingdoms, okay? So the basic building block of all of Daniel's prophecies are these four kingdoms. Daniel speaks to all four kingdoms, but Revelation is mainly concerned with the last part of the fourth kingdom. That's what we call the tribulation period. Okay? And that's where Revelation chapter, wow, chapter 6 through chapter 18, all that material is in that last half, that final part of that fourth kingdom. So these kingdoms are the basis or the basic building blocks to understand his prophecies, as well as other prophets, they build on this foundation. And Revelation builds on this foundation as well to color in some of these details. So you need to understand that these are the four basic building blocks. I feel like there should be a kindergarten thing there, four basic building blocks. In the New Testament, Christ calls these four kingdoms. He has a term, and you've probably heard it before, in Luke chapter 21, uh, he uses the term times of the Gentiles. That's the terminology he uses: times of the Gentiles. And it's described, it's a period that describes um, a time period from the Babylonian captivity, what we're going to talk about today in Daniel chapter 2, to the second coming of Christ, all the way in Revelation chapter 19. So when Christ talked about the times of the Gentiles, it's the times when the four kingdoms were ruling over the world. That's what he's talking about. So those four kingdoms stretches from Daniel chapter 2 in Babylon, 605 B.C., all the way till, well, still yet future, the second coming of Christ in Revelation chapter 19, 2,600 years of prophecy and counting every single day. So these, this times of the Gentiles is a big deal because Christ kind of gave us, put his stamp of approval on the fact that what Daniel was saying was actually true, and he actually refers back to Daniel so many times. So in other words, if we say it this way, before Christ comes back at the second coming to set up his kingdom, the history of human governments must run their course through four of them, okay? Must run their course, including the kingdom of the Antichrist. And so what happens is that in Daniel chapter two, he begins with this basic building block, building these four kingdoms. Then Daniel chapter 7, what we'll talk about in the following weeks, it's also about the four kingdoms, okay? So this is the basic of all building blocks. If we can understand the four kingdoms, then it'll help us understand all the rest of prophecy. So he's Daniel's talking about a lot more than what Revelation is talking about. Revelation is really focused on that last part of that fourth kingdom. And so when we look at the book of Daniel in Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7 is where those kingdoms are revealed. It's just looking at it from a different perspective. In Daniel chapter 2, what we'll talk about tonight is man's perspective of these four kingdoms. In chapter 7, we have God's perspective of these four kingdoms. Think about it as like two gospels to Daniel, okay? The first one, you get a certain perspective. The second one, you get another perspective. You combine them together And you get all the details for those four kingdoms, all right? So I'm slowly moving through this because I want to slowly build the case. I could just tell you the things here, but I feel like I need to be a good teacher and lead you to the conclusion that I want you to make, right? Okay. Daniel chapter 2, I want you to look at this passage of Scripture as we get into this text. Daniel chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Now in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was so troubled that his sleep left him. And the king gave them command to call his magicians, astrologers, the sorcerers, the Chaldeans, to tell the king his dreams. And so they came and stood before the king, and the king said to them, I have had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king and Aramaic, king, live forever, tell your servants the dream, and we will give the interpretation. And the king answered and said to the Chaldeans, My decision on this matter is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be cut in pieces, and your houses shall be made an ash heap. However, if you tell me the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts, rewards, and great honor. Therefore, tell me the dream and its interpretation. And they answered and said, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will give its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know for certain that you are buying time or you want to gain some time because you see that this is my decision. If you do not make known to me the dream, there is only one decree for you, for you have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the time has changed. Therefore, tell me the dream and I shall know that you can give me its interpretation." Now, look what verse 10 says. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can tell the king's matter. Therefore, no king, lord, or ruler has ever asked such things of any magicians, astrologers, or Chaldeans. It's a difficult thing that the king requests. And there is no other who can tell the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Now, that's not something that you tell your king by the way verse 12 for this reason the king was angry and very furious and gave the command to destroy all the wise men of babylon that would include daniel so the decree went out they began killing the wise men and they sought daniel and his companions to kill them and they show up at daniel's house verse 14 then with counsel and wisdom daniel answered answered arioch the captain of the king's guard who had gone out to kill the wise men of babylon and he answered and said to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree from the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the decision known to Daniel. So Daniel went in and asked the king to give him time that he might tell the king the interpretation. And then Daniel went to his house and made the decision known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, that they might seek the mercies from the God of heaven concerning this secret so that Daniel and his companions might not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the secret was revealed to Daniel in a night vision, so Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Verse 20, And Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for his wisdom and might are his. He changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings, raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and secret things. He knows what's in the darkness, and light dwells with him. I thank you and praise you, O God of my fathers, you have given me wisdom and might, and now you have made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's demand. So the first part of this story starts with Nebuchadnezzar has just come, and he has become king in the last few years. His daddy, Nabopolassar, had died a few years ago, and now he's the new king. And the first thing that he does is he gets in and he starts doing some house cleaning. He doesn't like the wise men. Those were his father's advisors. He wants his own new advisors. And he wants to test whether or not these new advisors are in touch with the gods, our wise men, our astrologers, our Chaldeans, our soothsayers. He wants to make sure that they actually can do what they say they can do. And so one day the text tells us he has a dream. And he wants to test to see if these guys really are in touch with a God. So he tells them, he says, I, won't want you to, I don't want you to just interpret the dream for me. I want you to tell me what I dreamt first, and then I want you to interpret the dream for me. This was the only way that he knew and could be certain that what was interpreted later on would be correct, right? Because in a normal situation the king would tell you his dream. And if you were a wise man who liked your head on your shoulders, you would often concoct a flowery, you know, interpretation. Oh, king, this dream, it means that your kingdom is going to last forever. It means that you're going to have riches beyond your wildest imaginations. It means this, this, and this. When the king would tell you his dream, you could do that. But in this case... They couldn't. They had to tell the king what he dreamt and its interpretation. Have you ever had that happen? Uh, you pro- nobody has had that happen, you don't think? It's like you get up in the next morning and you say, I had a dream to, to your wife or your spouse. And, tell me what I dreamt. Well, who knows? You know how wild and crazy dreams can be, right? Who knows what you could have dreamt? So he says, I want you to tell me what I dream and I want you to interpret it for me. And they tell the king, they said, listen, king, you know, we, we love serving you and, and we love being a part of the Babylonian kingdom, but we can't do what you ask. In fact, what you're asking from us, no king has ever asked any other king for. And the text says, it says, literally says, his, Nebuchadnezzar's face changes. You know, it actually changes. He gets mad. He gets upset. His countenance changes, as some translations say, and he decides it's time for house cleaning. It's time to round up all the wise men and kill them all. And Daniel would have been one of those wise men, although he was in training. He still went to his house, so he was considered one of the wise men. And so the captain of the king's guard comes to Daniel's house to gather him up for some kind of public execution. And Daniel asked the King's guard says, Why is the king's command so urgent? Why is it? And so Ariok explains the situation of what's happened. He's explained the fact that these wise men that are serving in the king's court just say, We can't do it, king. We can't. And so he asks time. In fact, the text later on tells us that he goes in to the king and he asks time Can I have time, king, so that I can interpret this dream? And the king says, Yes. And so Daniel and his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, they go into prayer that night, hoping to get the interpretation, not just the interpretation of the dream, but to actually, for God to reveal what he actually dreamt. Now, have you ever gone into prayer in the evening like that, like your life depended on it? (laughs) I mean, you think about that, because if they didn't come out, you know, if God didn't give them both the dream and the interpretation, then then they're going to die just like all the rest of the wise men. And so listen to what the text says. Verse 24. Therefore Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went in and said to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me before the king, and I will tell the king the interpretation. So then Arioch quickly brought Daniel before the king and said to the king, I have found a man. Listen to Arioch here. I have found a man of the captains of Judah. Who will make it known to the king the interpretation? He's obviously trying to take some credit here. The king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? And Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, The secret which the king has demanded, the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, and the soothsayers, cannot declare to the king, but there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Do you see that? God made known to Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Daniel is just interpreting Nebuchadnezzar's dream. So actually God's God's first revelation of the four kingdoms was not given to Daniel. It was given to Nebuchadnezzar, a pagan king of all. What will be in the latter days? Your dreams and the visions of, of your head upon your bed were these. And as for you, O king, your thoughts came to your mind while you're in bed, about to, um, while on your bed, about what would come to pass after this. And he who reveals secrets has made known to you what will be. But as for me, this secret has not been revealed to me because I have more wisdom than anyone living. But for our sakes, whom who make known the interpretation to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your heart. So Daniel comes in and he says, Listen, king, I have the interpretation. I, I can tell you what you dreamt and I can interpret it for you. Me and my three uh, prayer warriors, God gave it to us last night. And by the way, Hannah and I, Mishael and Azariah are here with him. Daniel's kind of just the spokesman. And so he goes in. And listen to what he says. This is this is what Nebuchadnezzar dreamt. Verse 31. You, O king, were watching, and behold a great image. This great image whose splendor was excellent stood before you, and its form was awesome. This image, this image's head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, It's feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This is the dream... Notice the pronoun here. Now we will tell the king the interpretation of it before the king. Verse 37. Actually, we won't go to that quite yet. So Daniel effectively says, this is what you dreamt, Nebuchadnezzar. Now do you think in your wildest dreams, and we all have wild dreams, right? Do you think in your wildest dreams you would have ever been able to tell someone else that they dreamt this? It, it, probably not. This this is ridiculous as to what it actually happens. So if you there, there's your image, there's your beautiful statue. This is what Daniel says Nebuchadnezzar dreams. He dreams this image. This is Nebuchadnezzar's statue: a head of gold, chest and arms of silver, belly and thighs of bronze, legs of iron, feet of iron and clay. That's the image that Nebuchadnezzar dreams. Now, Nebuchadnezzar realizes that, hey, Daniel actually described the dream. I mean, it's like he was in my head describing exactly the things that I saw. So now how he interprets it, Nebuchadnezzar says, I'm going to trust his interpretation of it because he described it right away. This guy, Daniel, he must be in touch with the gods. Obviously, my wise men have no idea how to be in touch with the gods, but Daniel here does. He knows exactly how. And he gives the interpretation of the, of the dream. Now, before we get to the interpretation of the dream, I want to make a couple of comments just about this statue in general before we get to what he actually says. So in the dream, you've got a head of gold, again, chest and arms of silver, stomach or belly and thighs of bronze, legs of iron, feet of iron and clay, and of course, the great stone. It's not in the picture. I had a hard time finding a good picture that was not crazy looking, but yet at the same time was straightforward and described what we needed to see, okay? The great stone is is not in there, and, and unfortunately, that's sad because the great stone is the point, is the big part of the actual image. So let me make just some general observations about this. So these four metals, gold, silver, bronze, and iron, represent the four kingdoms, okay? That's how it works. So the four kingdoms are represented by those four types of metals, all right? There is one statue, right? But there's four distinct kingdoms. And somehow these four kingdoms are related or share in common something. I think that the common element seems to be that they were all Gentile kingdoms. We said earlier, the times of the Gentiles, the times when the Gentiles would rule over The nation of Israel, they would subjugate and they would dominate the nation of Israel. So you have a unity or a bond exists, okay, between these kingdoms. Now, something else to think about is that, I'm going to get scientific on you here, the specific gravity of each metal decreases as you go down, okay? Gold is heavier than silver, silver than bronze, bronze and iron, iron and clay. The idea is that the the image is top-heavy. You know, it can easily teeter and fall, teeter and fall easily. The gold, the silver, the bronze, iron are all supported by a mixture that's pure mud. And what it's trying to tell us, just by looking at it, is is again, this is a picture of the tottering governments of the earth. They're totally unstable. You mean, you think about it today, um, one little... um, sickness of COVID-19 can, <laughs> you know, can do a lot of things to governments, can just it, it cause governments to be totally unstable, one little thing. And so as you go down through the statue, it's just interesting how any little thing can just knock the statue over. It's so unstable. It's so unstable. Also, something else to think about is the descending scale of value from gold to clay it suggests that the degeneration of the human race throughout the ages is prevalent think about it this way each kingdom is built upon the ruins of the next one the first kingdom Babylon is built upon the Persians built upon Babylon and then Greece builds upon the next one and then Rome builds upon the next one okay the longer the man the longer that man would attempt to rule the earth apart from God the more degenerate that rule would become so there's some things to think about here um, the the, uh, the power of the government is also represented in the statue. The statue divides and subdivides down further to its feet. Shows us how each kingdom was inferior to the last. You've got a head of gold, Nebuchadnezzar is representative. Then legs and iron, feet all the way down to toes. It just, it, it's kind of depicting here the different forms of government that we're going to talk about in general. The strength of the metals increase from actually the opposite way, from bottom up. But the most important thing about this is that all the metals used in the image were of human origin. But it says the stone that we're going to read just here shortly is cut out without human hands. It's of divine origin. Look at what it says in verse 36. Daniel says, this is the dream. Now we will tell the king the interpretation of it before the king. You, O king, are a king of kings, for the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, and strength, and glory. And whatever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field and the birds of heaven, he has given them into your hand and has made you ruler over them all. You are this head of gold. But after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours, then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, and as much as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything, and like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all others. And whereas you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, yet the strength of iron shall be in it. Just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay, and the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay. So the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. As you saw, iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix the clay. Verse 44, And in the days of these kings, what kings? We'll talk about that. The God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without human hands, and it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain, and the interpretation is sure. And King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face prostrate before Daniel and commanded they present an offering and incense to him. And the king answered Daniel and said, Truly, your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings, and a revealer of secrets, since you could reveal this secret. Of course, then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many gifts, made him rule him over the province. And many things happened after that. Daniel is able to describe. This dream and interpret it in detail for Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar is so impressed, he just falls down on his feet prostrate and says, Your God, Daniel, is the God of all gods here. Now, you know, Nebuchadnezzar, you know, he's a polytheist, serves many gods. um, And so he's kind of adding Daniel's God to his list of gods. But as Nebuchadnezzar kind of progresses through the book of Daniel, you kind of come to understand maybe in chapter 4 that maybe he does have a salvation experience where he kind of sort of repents and starts following the one true God completely and wholeheartedly. Um, I kind of feel that maybe we will see Nebuchadnezzar uh, in heaven. I feel like that he actually does repent, but that's for another Uh, For another message, I want to go down and talk about these couple of things with the time we have left, just real quickly. All right, so the text is quite clear the head of gold. All right, the head of gold. And Daniel says, Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold. So, where do you think Nebuchadnezzar's idea in Daniel chapter 3, where the image of gold comes from? You think he has a big head? Literally. Think of the image in Daniel chapter 3 as a bobblehead. That's how I think of it, as a bobblehead, okay? Because if you're the king, right, and he says, you are the head of gold. And if you're the king during that time, you're going to make that image so that all the other parts are tiny and don't, are really insignificant, and the head's going to be really big, okay? And Nebuchadnezzar had a big head, not literally, figuratively. He was very prideful, but you get it. I can make so many puns. From, uh, from this image here. But the head of gold, he specifically names Nebuchadnezzar. You are the head of gold. So Babylon, frequently in Scripture, kings were said to be embodiments of their kingdoms. It becomes synonymous with one another. So you are this head of gold. It's a reference to Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. Okay, So Babylon is that first kingdom represented by this head of gold. By the way, Marduk, the chief god of Babylon, was, ca- was called the god of gold. And gold was used extensively in Babylon and its building projects, its shrines and images, all that kinds of things. So it makes sense that Babylon would be associated with gold. Verse 39, it says, After you shall rise another kingdom inferior to yours. Inferior, it means earthward, it means downward. So each successive kingdom are going to be more earthly, more downward. He's simply going down the statue, explaining the meaning. But as. Um, it seems clear that mankind's kingdoms evolved throughout the history and, and, and they became more self centered. They tend to decline, get worse, a downward spiral, reaching the worst part of the tribulation. Um, inferior also doesn't necessarily have reference to size or ge- ge- geography, rather, because each kingdom seems to amass more territory than the original kingdom. But the next kingdom that comes along is the Medo Persian Empire, the chest and arms of silver, okay? So Chess, the empire, the two arms, Medo-Persia, right? Because you have two groups, the Medes and the Persians. And the Medes and the Persians are part of this second kingdom, the second kingdom. They are this second kingdom. Later on in, uh, I think it's in Daniel chapter 8, he says specifically, this is the second kingdom, the Medes and the Persians. They are the second kingdom, all right? So the Medes and the Persians unite earlier Um, And they become the chest and arms of silver. So you've got Babylon's the first kingdom. Medo-Persia is the second kingdom. Of Medo-Persia, the Persians become the stronger one. By the time you get to books like Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, it's all about Persia. It's not Medo-Persia. It's all about Persia. Okay. So as you develop through, you've got two. By the way, you can thank Medo-Persia for our tax system that we have today. They did a lot for taxes. And they did a lot for the mail. They had couriers that would deliver mail really well, like the uh, Postal Service did. So I guess some things are good, but they started using money for taxes and other types of things. So I really don't like the Medo-Persians. Um, especially as a, as, as a pastor when they, the IRS says, since you're a pastor, we want to charge you double. We want to, anyway, that's a whole nother story. So the belly and... and or stomach and thighs of bronze. That's the third kingdom. Verse 39, Then another, a third kingdom of bronze shall rule over all the earth. And the kingdom that follows that is the kingdom of Greece. And it's unique. It's said to rule the entire world. Remember the story of Alexander the Great? He goes and conquers what? The known world. And I don't know if it's true, but he sits down and cries because there's no more of the world to conquer. He conquers the, all the known world. Um, Chapter 7 and 8 talk a little bit more about Greece. Then you've got the legs of iron. It says, The fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, as much as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything. And like iron that crushes that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all others. Now, here's where something changes. Okay, Kingdom number one is identified in the text. Daniel says, Babylon, you, Nebuchadnezzar, are Babylon. You are the, this is the first kingdom of gold. We know the Medes, and the, Pers- Pers- the, the Medes and the Persians, the Medo-Persian Empire, comes along. Daniel says specifically, the second kingdom is the Medes and the Persians. He also says in chapter 8 of Daniel. Then he says kingdom number three is the Greek kingdom, the Grecian kingdom. He says it in the text. But the fourth kingdom comes along, and he doesn't name the fourth kingdom with a proper name. All the other ones he's named. By the way, he's naming Rome, excuse me, he's naming Greece as the third kingdom. Greece hasn't really become a nation yet or even developed into a world power at this time. Most of the people who live here in the area of where Israel is, of where Daniel's prophecy is in Babylon, they don't even know there's an actual people group over there in Greece anywhere. But Daniel actually names the Grecian Empire. But he doesn't say the name of the fourth. It doesn't include it in the text. And I think that's kind of interesting. Because remember, the text is king. The text is king. You have to pay attention to what the text says. So he says the fourth kingdom is not named. He doesn't identify it. Now, historically, after Greece, the next kingdom that comes is Rome. We know that from history. That's the next one that comes. I like to call it man's final kingdom because it's the fourth one, right? Right before that last stone comes and destroys the entire statue, All right. So the fourth kingdom. So guess what? We're living today in the fourth kingdom. Sounds like something of Lord of the Rings and Middle Earth. We're living in the fourth kingdom today. Why? Because the last thing that happens is the stone comes and destroys the statue. So technically, we're living somehow on this fourth kingdom. Now, are we living under the rule of Rome? I'm not. You might be, but I'm not. The best working interpretation as we talk about this, um, Rome, because you think about Rome when ancient Rome started, all up to today, that's 2,000 years of history. The best working interpretation might be that Rome commenced or started the reign of this fourth kingdom and another nation will finish it, whether it's a revived Roman Empire in the future or something else. We don't know. Then you go to the feet and toes of iron and clay and Again, further allusions kind of to Rome and specifically how it's going to be revived in the future. Let me just explain it this way. Uh, My time's gone, so I'm trying to synthesize some stuff. So the fourth kingdom started with Rome, and it continues even until today. So that's a big span of time, okay? Daniel named kingdom number one Babylon, Medo-Persia, and he named Greece, and all those kingdoms have come and have fallen. Well, Rome came, right? And Rome fell, right? Rome did fall. But yet we're still in the fourth one because the stone hasn't come. The stone is representative of the second coming of Christ when he comes and establishes his kingdom on earth, that millennial reign. And he comes at the Battle of Armageddon and just completely annihilates All of man's kingdoms collectively as they gather to go against God at that battle of Armageddon. That hasn't happened yet. So that means we're still living in the fourth kingdom in some fashion. So the way I look at it, the fourth kingdom, it might be best to understand, it just has several different phases to it. Maybe Rome was the first phase. And then probably the last part of the fourth kingdom is the second phase, which relates to Revelation, the tribulation period, that we studied Revelation chapter 6 to Revelation chapter 18, all those things that happened in the tribulation period, okay? That stuff is still yet future. So we're living in this fourth kingdom that we're at right now. We're not under the rule of Rome necessarily. I mean, we follow some of the things that maybe Rome started or some of the philosophies or tendencies or things that Rome started. We follow some of those things, but we're not under that rule at all. So we're living in that fourth kingdom. So when we look at the book of Revelation, and when you look at that tribulation period, all the seals, all the trumpets, all the vile judgment, all those things that happen, we're talking about the last half of this fourth kingdom. The last half of this fourth kingdom in the future. So Daniel has given us, kind of sets down a foundation from all the way back from his day in Babylon. Then you go to Medo-Persia, then you go to Greece, then you go to the fourth kingdom and the start of it with Rome, and it continues on and on and on till the very end. And that's where the book of Revelation kind of picks up, at the very end of the fourth kingdom. Now what's going to happen is that when we go to Daniel chapter 7, the next time Daniel goes right to the fourth kingdom. He's interested about this kingdom. He's like, I want to know more, he says to the angel, about this fourth kingdom. Because it's different than the other three. Yeah, Babylon, Medo-Persian, Greece, they're just normal kingdoms. Yeah, I get it. But I want to know about this fourth kingdom. Because it's different, he says, than all the rest. And he's really focusing on that last half of the book of Revelation. Chapter 6, again, through 18, where it talks about the tribulation period. So as you look at the book of Daniel, kind of just just wrapping things up here, as you look at the book of Daniel, these four kingdoms form the foundation of what Daniel explains is going to happen in the end times. Obviously, Babylon has already happened, so we can check that kingdom off the list, right? Medo-Persia, check that one off the list. Greece, check that one off the list. The fourth kingdom, well, it hasn't ended because at the end of the fourth kingdom, the great stone destroys all the kingdoms of the world. So we're in the fourth kingdom. Does that kind of scare you? Sometimes I think about that. Sometimes it kind of scares me a little bit. Because we're in the fourth kingdom, which means the next kingdom that's going to come is the kingdom of Christ. I mean, it's a good thing, right? But it also means that there's a lot of things that have to happen yet. And it seems like the world is, is it seems like with all that's happened these last five or ten years, it seems like the world is, is the stage is easily being set for some of those things to happen in the book of Revelation. Globalism and all the things that happen, um, the, the, it seems like it's so easy for it to happen. You see how easily what COVID did to the world and how easily the world just shut down, it seems, and how easily it's going to happen in the future. Now, that's kind of trying to explain a whole, <laughs> a whole course in one night, Of the four kingdoms, but I just want you to understand that's what he's trying to do. And as far as Revelation connects, it's that last part of that fourth kingdom that he's doing, okay? So God gave Daniel 2,600 years ago this, he helped him interpret this vision that that, that Nebuchadnezzar had about this stuff 2,600 years in the future. And it's happened exactly as scripture has said. And again, if God is in control of the, of the future, then you know he's in control of the present. And while it might be hard to trust God, I like to trust God despite the details. I know there's a lot of details here, but I'm hoping you get the big picture. And I'm hoping you understand that it doesn't matter what happens. We know that God is in control of all things. And he is always sovereign. He is always in control. If there's anything that Daniel shows us, In the book of Daniel, it's that God is in complete control of everything. And if we can trust him for that, then we can trust him for anything. Some of these prophecies I still don't get. The hard ones are in chapter 11, and we probably won't ever touch those.